So you don't want to just say, well, I don't know why I'm anxious. You want to narrow it down because you cannot have a feeling in the brain without content in the mind. And that content is very specific. Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Dr. John Martini. Now, I have been following, studying, listening to this man for decades. He originally came out into the world. Many people know him from The Secret. He was on The Secret, but he's been teaching human behavior and how to work with all of the ups and downs of our mind um, for years. And, And why I wanted to bring him on the podcast, this is actually the second time I've had him on the Resetter podcast is because he, I want you to listen to this conversation and and hear that he is saying new language. He is giving us new solutions to old mental health problems. And when we look at things like anxiety and depression, what we often try to do is attack these reoccurring thoughts with the same solution, only leading us to more and more pain and suffering. And what I love about Dr. Martini is that you're going to hear in this conversation how we can embrace the ups of life and the downs of life. In fact, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even call it that. He you'll hear is that he st- he mentions multiple times stop calling it a good day and a bad day. It's just a day. And what we do in our world in our in our daily habits is we start labeling everything that we see come into our life as good or bad and that is creating so much of our suffering. So, as you listen to this podcast, this is definitely going to be one that I encourage you to listen twice or listen with a friend, have some discussions around it because it's going to be a paradigm shift for you. He's going to give you tools that you had never mentally thought about before to end the chronic anxiety and the chronic depression that is running so many people right now. So this conversation is deep. It is words you've probably never heard before. It's it's going to re have you rethink about traumas in your life. It's going to have you look at your daily habits differently. And it is, it's a mind blowing experience, but you're going to see that as you listen all the way through, in fact, I would encourage you at the end, he really went into some application of this. As you listen all the way through, you will discover that the way we have been approaching mental health, the way we've been, been approaching our happiness may be all wrong. We may have been taught all wrong how, where happiness comes from. Because when you start to listen to this conversation, you realize that every moment of our life is an opportunity to grow and an opportunity to be more of our authentic selves. And honestly, for me and everything that I do and and every way I show up, I want to be as authentic as I possibly can, which means I need to embrace the upsides and embrace the downsides of my personality and the way that my brain works. And Dr. Martini is the only behavior expert, the only uh, thought leader out there that I really feel is helping us understand the polarities that exist 
best in our life and in our minds. So this is a beautiful conversation. I have to tell you behind the scenes when he first got on, I, I said to him, I, you came on to my podcast a year ago um, and I'm so happy to have you back. And he said to me, oh, it took you a whole year to process our first conversation. And he's right. You're going to hear that in this. It's going to take you some time to process what he's saying. But I truly believe that the whole goal of health and happiness is to come back to our authentic selves. And Dr. Martini is giving us a path to that, um, that I have not heard any other thought leader do. So I'm so excited to give this episode to you. Please let me know. Leave me a review. Let me know what you think of it. Share it out into the world. And I I just dream of a world where we're all living in our truest self and, and operating from this authentic place. Because, you know, I know when I see the authenticity in somebody else, it's the most attractive quality. And I cannot wait to share this episode with you. So enjoy. Can we start with this question? And this is something that, and I'm just diving right in. This is something that I've really been thinking about, um, which is we're coming out of the pandemic and so many people are reorganizing their life, which is amazing. They're breaking paradigms apart. They're rethinking about things. But the mental health of a lot of people right now is really suffering. So talk to us a little bit about this concept you have about survival versus thrival. How do you know when you're in survival? Uh, how, do, how do you know when you're in thrival? And can, can we use our thoughts to move from survival to thrival? And if so, how do we do that? <laughs> well, without being too simplistic, um, there is considered in our brain a cortical and a subcortical way of perceiving and responding. Sometimes it's called systems one thinking and the other systems two thinking. Systems one thinking is a survival mode for emergencies, which is filled with impulses and instincts and immediate gratification to capture prey and to avoid predator. And this is what is active in many people when they're perceiving life in an imbalanced way and perceiving distress. When we are more balanced in our orientation, we activate a cortical area, the prefrontal cortex, instead of the amygdala, which is more objective than subjective and more homeostatic than polarized. And this area thinks before it reacts. The the former one was reacting before thinking. This is thinks before it reacts. It's slower. It's not as immediate. It's more long-term visionary. So unless we know how to ask questions to be fully conscious of both sides of our perceived events and not swayed by subjectively biased misinterpretations of our reality, we'll go into systems one and react. For instance, let's say you meet somebody that you think Uh, is going to provide you more drawbacks and benefits, more negatives and positives, more pains and pleasures. You're conscious of the downsides, but you're unconscious of the upsides. You're going to go into systems one thinking and create an instinct to avoid that person. And they're going to run you intrinsically. 
And if you meet somebody that you think is going to save you from that distress and you're conscious of the upsides and conscious of the downsides, it's going to create the amygdala's response and the nucleus accumbens to cause an impulse to seek it. And both of them are extrinsically stimulating you and you're reacting to these misinterpretations of the reality that you've identified your life in. But if you ask questions and make you conscious of unconscious information and ask the questions that make you aware of the upsides to what you think has got only downsides or the downsides to the thing you think has only upsides and become accountable by bringing the balance sheet into balance in your brain, you change the neurochemistry, you change the impulse and instinct into an action that spontaneously is in line with what you value most and what's meaningful to you. It's the mean between the polarity, mm. as Aristotle would say. So the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. And if you ask questions that equilibrate the mind and bring equanimity to the mind and equity between you and your perceptions of things around you, you automatically get systems to thinking and you begin to act wisely with foresight and planning and live by design instead of reaction and emergency situations. Mm -hmm. So wisdom is knowing how to ask those questions. I've spent 50 years outlining and discovering what those questions are. That's what the, what I'm teaching in the breakthrough experience. That's what I'm trying to give in. You know, because if they have those questions, there's nothing your mortal body can experience through your senses that your mortal soul, your authentic self can't love and can't turn into opportunity. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, everything is on the way, not in the way. But we get distracted by impulse mm -hmm. and instincts, by having imbalanced perspectives and get run from the external world and create false attribution biases on our reality instead of taking command and realizing it has nothing to do with out there. It has everything to do with us. We have command of our perception, decision, mm -hmm. and actions at all times. So we've given power away by these misinterpretations of our reality. And knowing how to ask the question to take command and go back into mindfulness instead of conscious, unconscious splits in our awareness, liberate us from the baggage and allow us to have fuel, um, you know, and inspiration in life. So the anxieties, mm -hmm. our phobias, our fantasies, all that is a self-induced. It's because we've accumulated misinformation mm -hmm. and stored it in our subconscious mind and we're compounding it with further misinformation instead of actually getting to the objective truth yeah. about what's happening. Yeah. So what happens, you know, with when we get stuck in that amygdala, in that systems one thinking, that we have a whole history in there. So let's use the example. Like uh, we can use the example of when I was 16. I A week after I got my driver's license, I was driving in the rain and a car spun out going in the opposite direction and hit my car. And so for decades, I would go and get in the, whenever it rained, I didn't want to drive. And so the way I look at that from a brain perspective is that my amygdala sense had a, had a story that driving in the rain is dangerous. And I think there's so many of us who carry those stories around. And then we see this situation and it starts to trigger the amygdala to keep you safe. So in that moment when you're being triggered, knowing you're being triggered, it, how do we move ourselves to systems two thinking so that we don't just keep operating from that amygdala? Well, 
the event that occurred initially that you assumed had more drawbacks and benefits is an incomplete awareness. <laughs> Good point. And it will be stored. See, the amygdala adds yeah. valency to experiences and sends those imbalanced perspectives over to the hippocampus to be stored as a memory. And then our subconscious mind is the accumulation of those imbalanced memories to protect us from the instincts and seek the prey, the prey and predator game. So the subconscious mind stores all conscious, unconscious splits from the past that have never been balanced and be fully conscious. So in that moment, you're going to react because systems one is larger diameter neurons and they fire much faster than systems two. And so you're going to react first. Unless you go back with a preemptive strike and a foresight to go back to that original event. And in that moment that you were in the rain, that you stored an assumption that there were more drawbacks and benefits. If we go in there and find out what were the benefits of that, where were the opposites of that, which were there, but you oversighted them. You were unconscious of them. But if I made you fully conscious of them, which is what I do in the breakthrough experience and doing with the Martini method, if I made you fully conscious of them, um, you would no longer have that stored as a subconsciously stored, you know, danger. You would have it as an already balanced situation. You just drive and it's rain and then go about your business. Because, yes, you'd be conscious that mm-hmm. there's that you need to be cautious. I mean, because you're rain and driving in rain is oil on your tires and on the street, make it more slick. and da, da, da. So you're not going to be foolish, but you're not going to react from previous stored subconsciously stored baggage. So you can go back to that moment. I do it every weekend in the breakthrough experience with the method, the Martini method. I, I do that every week. And I take so-called trauma. See, people think there's actually a trauma out there. There was never a trauma out there until you chose to make it hmm. by your associations you made with it. If I came and I took your hand, so- let's imagine I grabbed your hand right here and put it on the desk. And I took a hammer and slammed it all of a sudden. You go, whoa. And you, oh, God. And you thought, my God, that's traumatic. The guy just traumatized me. Why did he do that? You would associate pain without pleasure in your mind. But if I told you I'm going to Mm -hmm. give you a billion dollars cash, it's sitting right next to the desk where I'm slamming it. It's a billion dollars cash. It's yours. It's in your bank account. Uh. A night with George Clooney, Gerard Butler, Brad Pitt, the top 12 men of your dreams, plus a billion cash, plus a new car, plus a new house, and any of the things that you might fantasize about. I'm just making those up. It might be somebody else. Mm -hmm. But if I put enough advantages on there, you would actually put your thumb out there. And if I told you this would be repaired in 10 days and it's a temporary 10-day aggravation for all of that. You put your thumb out there and say, stay mm-hmm. away, baby. It wouldn't be traumatic unless you've chosen. Anaxagoras, 2,500 and something years ago, described that pain and pleasure are perceptions. They're ratios of perceptions. I had a lady recently that had mm-hmm. uh, liver cancer, and she was having tremendous pain in her chest, and not, not chest, but her abdomen, right underneath the diaphragm. And um, what I did is I said, I, I went in there and I had him describe what's the color of the pain. And she said, red and black. 
And I said, great. And what's the sensation? Is it throbbing? Is it burning? Is it? And she said, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an acute pain. It's black and red. And it, and it's, and it's a bit of throb to it. Like every time it, the heart rate goes, you know, beats. And, and we described the smell, the taste, the tactile, the feel, the movement. We got all the modalities and submodality distinctions on what that represented in the brain. Then I did is I took, according to Wilhelm Wundt, there's a with the contrast where I took the exact contrast, just like there might be blue and yellow or purple and, and orange or something, contrast. I reversed colors and I took contrasting sensations and I had her image those sensations, the complete opposite. If it was fast, I slowed it down. If it was slowed, I sped it up. And I made her create a composite image of that and held her image on that. And then I did a, like a particle accelerator. I slammed them together until they turn into light in their imagination. And when I got through, she couldn't feel her pain because the pain was a representation hmm. in her brain that she'd accumulated. And it's not anything but a, you know, as, as John Bonica said, pain is a private sensation of hurt. And it's based on the associations we make and the fibers that are stimulated. And if we stimulate mechanoreceptors and new associations, we can change pain into pleasure and pleasure into pain. We can make hell out of heaven, hell out of hell, heaven out of hell, as John Milton says. So knowing how to ask questions to reorient the association we make with any experience can transform trauma into an opportunity. I've been actually bet that I can and can't do that. And one bets and turning an event that was traumatic into something that was orgasmic. And then people couldn't believe I could do it, but it's simply asking the right questions, making people conscious and making new association to the brain. The brain is simply a taking its sensory stimuli, transducing them, putting them into action potentials, and all the association to the brain are what give us the sensations we have. And there are people that don't even feel pain. There's a book by Milton Ward called hmm. Function of Pain, and we don't even feel pain. And they can't hmm. function. They can't even go through life because they don't know that they just ban their, their foot into the door. They don't feel it. Right. Well, the brilliant yeah. pain is an actual appreciation, its role. But these are associations we make and we can change them. And people don't believe that. And they want to blame the outside event and blame the individual with a false attribution bias instead of take command of their reality. Yeah. You know what? This reminds me, uh, like where my brain goes with that is, well, what about the horrible things that happen to people like you know, rape or, you know, something that's really traumatic that has happened to them, abuse of some kind. It's I think that is perception. Yeah. And I, I've taken, but how do you, so how would you I've use that perception? 1300 rape cases through that process and had them no longer in anxiety, fear, resentment, etc. over that event. See, to let that run your life the rest of your life to me is is crazy. I'm not denying that this horrible. I'm not denying that the individual did these actions, but when you break rape down, it goes into threat, constraint, deception, violation, injury. You know, it's broken down into subcomponents. And what we do is we then go and ask, where do we do those things? And I've done thirteen hundred cases of it. I haven't found anyone that just broken it down and didn't find where they've done that. And they couldn't find where the other sides are, the upsides to it. And you think, well, that's terrible. No, it isn't. You choose to make it. So you can turn that into a great gift. I have a lady right now that's traveling the world 
doing amazing things as a best-selling author and started out with that event. And we transformed it into how we could use that to do something extraordinary with her life. So instead of staying a victim of history, she became a master of destiny and saw it on the way instead of in the way. And so it's the association we make with it. I'm not denying that that occurred, but we make it trauma. What we did is that, yes, they did constrain us. Yes, they did uh, hit us with a hammer or whatever, with a bat or whatever. Those are not false. But now the question is, what are we going to perceive? What are we going to do with that? We have control over our perceptions, decisions, and actions over that event. So we can stay stuck and run our story for the rest of our life, or we can transform the story and get on with doing something amazing with it, use it to catalyze something extraordinary. I help people do that. Hmm. So we don't want to label some Labels keep you stuck. You, uh, abuse hmm. is... When people come to me in the Breakthrough Experience, the program I teach where I show people how to do this, people say, well, I was abused. Abuse is an absolutely non-descriptive idea. If I said I was abused by my father, it does not tell you anything about what he did. It doesn't say, did he did he hit me with his fist? Did he uh, chop out my finger or chop off my finger? Did he knock a tooth out? Did he feed me toxin food? I mean... It doesn't tell you anything. It's a label, broad, vague, general label. You always want to break it down to the actual actions. And then you can do something with those actions and you can neutralize those actions. But labels and broad, vague, general labels is an amygdala's response to an epinephrine and norepinephrine escalation to capture prey and to avoid predator. And it distorts things. You always want to take it down to the facts, Mm. get out the fictions and transform the perceptions and there's nothing the mortal body can experience that the authentic self and mortal soul can't transcend and turn into opportunity. So I don't start with the idea that this is a terrible event. I said, it's an event. Now let's find out how we can use it. And so some of the things that drive the amygdala and get the amygdala talking are not as linear or tangible as an event like we're talking about, like a abuse event. Sometimes we have a nervous system that's just been trained to be hyperactive and always be looking for the next stressor because we've had a lot of stressors. And what I've found about the amygdala is that once you're locked in that amygdala thinking or the systems one thinking, you start thinking like the amygdala is trying to keep you safe all the time. It's scanning. So now it's like, you're not safe because of this. You're not safe because of this, because now you're operating from that place and you don't even know how you got there. Well, you, so you what can. do you do if it- you can, you know, when somebody says, I don't know how I got okay. there, it means they're not really taking an inventory of what step by step process compounded it. Let me give you an example. Let's, let's say you have okay. an event in your life and your father and mother were fighting in the, in the living room. And you're a three-year-old or two-year-old. No, you're a two-year-old kid, not even two-year-old. And you are frightened. And they're screaming and yelling and stuff. And you crawl off your room and hide under the bed and cover your ears and your eyes and put a pillow around you and suck your thumb and you hide under the bed. And you you heard them and you saw them and you ran away. And now all you had is feeling you because you didn't want to see and you didn't want to hear it. So you went down and just felt it and curl up in the fetal position. Okay, then the father and the mother, they, they, you fall asleep as, a, as a, an avoidance response. The parents then stop, and they go to bed. And the next morning, dad's at work. Mom takes you to the grocery store. You go to the grocery store, and 
you're going down an aisle, sitting in a little basket, your mom's pushing you away, you're facing your mom, and all of a sudden your mom's looking at items to buy, and there's a guy coming down the aisle towards her that had the same blue jeans that your father had on and the same white type of shirt that your father had on and had a brown hair and a brown beard, just like the father, and you have associations of those without even realizing the brain. And so now you go, oh, my God, somebody's approaching mommy. And you'll do one of two things. You'll either get behind mommy and try to pull mommy away and make a scene to try to distract her. Or you'll get in front of mommy and try to defend it, a fight or flight response. And you'll start making a scene. And then the, the guy will walk by and then you'll calm down. And you're, you went into a reaction temporarily because of those associations. Then you go around the next turn in the grocery store. And now you see a guy with blue jeans, yellow shirt, brown hair, and brown mustache. So now your brain associates white shirt or yellow shirt, blue jeans. And then you didn't even know why, but now that's associated in your brain. So now you don't quite trust white shirt, blue jean, brown haired guys because they might attack mommy. And or you might be going into fight or flight mode. And now you go down the next aisle. Now you see a guy with uh Blonde hair, blonde mustache, white shirt, blue jeans. So now you've got blonde hair and brown hair and white white shirt and yellow shirt with blue jeans associated. So after a while, you make secondary and tertiary and compounding of these associations. And now 50 things set off an anxiety response. Anxiety is a compounded secondary, tertiary, quaternary compounded association from a primary event that you chose to see a negative without a positive. And you're, you chose to have perception of avoidance and instinct to avoid. If I go in there to that original event and I make new associations and change that whole system, that whole cascade disappears and the anxiety responses. So you don't want to just say, well, I don't know why I'm anxious. You want to narrow it down because you cannot have a feeling in the brain without content in the mind. And that content is very specific. And when people say, I don't know why I'm frightened, I don't know why I'm anxious, stop, stop, stop that language. Hold yourself accountable, close your eyes. Are you feeling anxious? Yes. What's the content of your mind? Yes, I'm afraid of this. You can't have fear, a feeling of fear without content in the mind. So if I go and I isolate that and get specific, instead of broad, vague generalities, I'm feeling anxious. I can take that and we can now work with that and we can neutralize that by asking different questions and making them aware of things that they oversighted. Because in that moment, there was another side that we chose not to see. We've all had events in our life that we thought were terrible. And then a day, a week, a month, a year, five years later, we go, wow, thank God that occurred. But we didn't take the time to have the wisdom of the ages without the aging process. And we can look right there in that moment and find the other side. That's what I do in the breakthrough experience. I show people how to transform the so-called baggage that they think they've been through and turn it into fuel of opportunity. And then it's no longer running life. The amygdala comes offline and the executive center comes back online. So what if you, you're not aware of what that first event was? So let's use the example of the arguing parents. Let's say you grew up in a household where the parents were constantly arguing and so you and then you were not you were told to be quiet. You couldn't express any emotion or react to the, the arguing that was going on. So now 
you go into a place of stress and you're in the amygdala, you're activating the amygdala. Now the rest of your life, anytime people are arguing, anytime anger shows up, you're now associate that with a bad thing, but you don't realize that you're just, you move away from conflict continuously because well, you are, your amygdala tells you conflict is not safe, but you don't understand why. To say you don't, you're not aware of it, not realizing it is not true. That's, that's the story. If you believe the mm-hmm. conscious story of people, you won't okay. transform their life. You don't, I don't pay attention to their conscious stories half the time because I, they got another unconscious side. Yeah. You're, you're conscious of the up. Think, of, think yeah. about a guy you met that you were infatuated with. You were conscious of all the positives, but you had an intuition. Be, be, be careful. This is too good to be true. Watch out. You had an intuition, but you didn't listen to it. And you allowed that impulse to run you. Mm-hmm. Even though your intuition was whispering, beware, this, you know, be on the lookout. So we have another side, an unconscious side, and we put the unconscious and the conscious together, we get a full story. So I don't go by just the conscious story because mm-hmm. they've been running that story and dramatizing it, and it's malleable, and they've been making stuff up and adding to it over the years. I want them to go in that moment. Now, sometimes there's a very complex series of things that have occurred. It's cascaded into many different areas, and you're right. It's hard for them to discern what is the original piece. That's fine. We can still take a layer at a time and peel back the onion one piece at a time and clear it and go to the next layer. It'll come right back up in the next layer, the next layer. Mm -hmm. Or we can regress and go back to the most original event. Or we can look back in the history. When did you first notice this and get closer to that event and start dissolving the events from that point on save time? There's many ways of approaching it, but there's not one thing that can't be dissolved. Not one. Every one of the people that have come and said, well, I've got this thing and everything else. They want to run their story. They want to dramatize it. Stop the story. Stop the drama. Let's now methodically go through and follow a process and clear it. And I guarantee it's clearable. Those The anxieties are very simple. We had a lady in London who had uh, was standing on a street corner with a bunch of friends. They were smoking some pot and they were just sitting there, you know, having a good old time talking and socializing and everything else. A car pulls up comes right up to the curb, right where they're standing, and says, hey, can you give me instructions? And so she walked over there and started giving this this group of people in a car instructions. They grabbed her and tried to pull her in the car. A man went and grabbed her by the legs and tried to hold her and was dragged down the street. Finally, they let her go and drove off. So she was in shock and in a post-traumatic stress and wasn't able to sleep at night, was having anxiety, and they put her on meds and all this other crazy stuff. I went in there, I spent two hours with her. We went through frame by frame by frame of each of those experiences. We found out the other side of the equation. We found something interesting. When she was looking down from this kind of hill area, looking down to the street where the car was, I said, as you're looking down and they're trying to pull you down into the car and get in the car, who is actually trying to lift you up and pull you back in the opposite direction? She says, the guy that was standing there that was holding on to me. I said, and who was he? He was the guy I was hoping wanted me. <laughs> she mm. goes, wow. The, well, the guy that I was too shy to initiate a reaction to, but I fantasize about trying to be a partner with him and be in a relationship with him is the guy that rescued me. He secretly wanted to be with me. I secretly wanted to be here with him. I said, so is this these guys actually a specialist coming into your life to help you get in the relationship you want to do? And she started laughing. She goes, Wow, I never thought of it that way. And I reframed that perception. 
And all of a sudden she goes, the one of the most painful moments of life was one of the most pleasurable because that guy stayed with me throughout the night. And then part of the next day met wow. my parents, came to my house, everything I fantasize about came about because of that guy. And I didn't even get to thank them for helping us get together. We reframe that whole perception and all of a sudden, no drug, no anxiety, no difficulty sleeping, no post-traumatic stress. We just kept taking frame by frame by frame and looking at it from a different perspective. New associations. So we don't have to sit there and be wallowing in that and running the story and taking some psychiatric pill for that. There's a solution for it. And and I, I love doing that. That's why I teach the breakthrough experience and the method, because I, I am certain that whatever you're experiencing, you have power to transform your perception of what that was. Yeah, profound. So if I if I'm going about my day and something triggers me and now I'm in an anxious state, is there a question I can ask myself to understand what the content yeah. is of Stop. that anxiety? Stop. Stop the story. You're in, and just quit saying I'm anxious. It's not going to get you anywhere. It doesn't accomplish anything. But what you can do is go, okay, okay, what exactly is the content of my mind at this moment? And write it down. What is the content of my mind? I am afraid. Anxiety or fear is an assumption you're about to experience more pain than pleasure, more loss than gain, more negative than positive in the near or far future that you're perceiving is about to occur. So what is that? You can identify with this. I have no problem getting that out of people when they just stop and get present. If they get present, they can answer that question. Once we identify that, now we can break the fantasy of if it didn't happen, life would be happier. Because as long as you hold on to a fantasy, that's that's going to add to the fear, the fantasy of its opposite. Right. So I come up and break the fantasy and I look at, okay, if it was to happen, how do we use that to our advantage? And we neutralize it. We cognitively appraise the whole thing until all of a sudden it's flat, it's neutral. And then we go to the next one. Is it What else is in there? 90% of the time, it's not even anxious when you're done. Then it'll all of a sudden go to the next thing that's on your mind. And we go in there, do the same thing. And it's usually a few things, maybe one, two, three, four things. And they're usually dissolvable and that doesn't take that much time. And then all of a sudden they're going, I'm not anxious. No, but you were storing fantasies. Anytime you have an event that you think is all negative and positive, your brain will dissociate from that and create an association anti-memory of the opposite polarity. And you'll create a fantasy to, to make yourself homeostatic, to balance out your brain. It'll literally balance yeah. out your neurochemistry yeah. and your what they call an anti-memory neuron magazine that shows it. So that dis that dissociation from the so-called trauma and the association, the so-called ecstasy are going on at the same time. But if I don't show you both of them, you're going to believe one existed and was real. But the, that, the truth is both of them were there. If I bring those to your awareness and find the drawback of the fantasy and the benefit of the thing you think is a nightmare, put them back into balance, it poofed. And now the subconscious mind is released from the amygdala's valencies and the superconscious mind which is full consciousness, mindfulness is awakened. Now you're fully aware of both sides and you're not reactive. Because when you're balanced in your perspective, you don't fear the loss of something you're infatuated with. You don't fear the, the gain of something you're resentful. You're resilient because now you're neutral. And you don't fear the loss or gain. But if you're highly polarized, you're going to fear its loss. If you're highly polarized and negatively, you're going to fear its gain. So we create our fears by the polarization mm. of our perceptions, and that's under our control. Wow. So can I, if in that moment of anxiety, could I ask myself, would it be helpful to say, why are you anxious? What is it right now? And then why. listen to that answer. The and then can you, 
Take out the why. Don't say why. Okay. What is the content? What's the content? What is the content? And then okay. what is the fear that I face? There's only two types of fears. Okay. I, I, I can ask anybody who's listened to this, and they can make a list of all the fears they've had in their life, all the distress moments they've had in their life, and there's only two kinds, only two in the brain. The fear of loss of something you're okay. speaking and the fear of gain of something you're trying to avoid. All distress fall into one of those two categories. And that content is not vague and broad and general. It's specific because you cannot have an association of brain without a specific episodic event that you chose to be charged about. So you can actually identify it by just getting present and asking at that moment, what specifically is my fear of losing something that I want or gaining something I don't want and define that. Now you've got something to work with and you can balance it. And what if your brain says, well, I'm, I'm scared of, uh, of, of losing a relationship. And then therefore I'm, it, it validates the brain's talking to itself saying, I'm not, I'm not enough. I'm not loved. Okay. So the fear starts to go into some core values that you drive you. This is going to shock everybody who's going to hear this, but it's good. Make them wake up. If you're in a relationship where you fear the loss of it, it's not a balanced relationship. It's an infatuation with somebody and you're the underdog and they're the overdog and they're going to want to keep their options open because you're not a match. Got it. Okay. So if you're the underdog, you're going to be the one that's altruistically sacrificing yourself to be with them. You're going to fear the loss of them because you're dependent on them and they don't want a dependent. Nobody wants a dependent. They want a match. And so that's a symptom that this isn't the one. (laughs) And you already intuitively know it. You already intuitively know it or you wouldn't be in that position. So because if it's a balanced match, you're, you're, you're already balanced. See, anytime you minimize yourself to somebody else, you self-depreciate. Self-depreciation is there to design to make you aggravated because you're sacrificing what's important to you to be with them. I mean, think about when you're highly infatuated with somebody. The first few weeks while you're infatuated, you do weird stuff to be with them because you don't want to lose them. And you're now jealous as heck at the beginning. But then the relationship goes through a, its cycle. And all of a sudden, now you're starting to resent them. And now you almost hope they have an affair. I hope they go find somebody because I don't have to deal with them anymore. When you resent them, you don't have a fear of them leaving. Only when you're infatuated with them, do you fear them leaving. And when you're the underdog, you fear the loss of them. When you're the overdog, you fear the gain of them. You don't want to be around them because you're starting to accumulate resentments. So these are responses and physiologic responses. They're not mistakes. They're not weaknesses. They're not flaws in your personality. They're normal biological responses trying to give you feedback to let you know you're in a relationship that's not a match. A perfectly balanced relationship has a nice bantering and you're not sitting there. You have confidence in yourself and you also have confidence in them and there's a nice banter. But if you're the underdog, you're going to fear their loss. If you're the overdog, you're going to fear their gain. The overdog always wants to keep options open. The underdog always wants monogamy and wants to hold on to them. They smother them. The overdog wants another to keep an option because they know they're not with somebody who's a match. Nature is trying to get us to find a match. And allow us to be authentic and be able to be with them. When we're the overdog, we're afraid to be too nice to them. We don't want to mislead them. When we're the underdog, we're afraid to be mean to them. We don't want to lose them. We're not being authentic. But when we actually have a match, we can actually be ourselves. And we can praise and reprimand equally. And we have a dialogue and communication. That's what you're looking for. 
If you lose the other one, it's to your advantage. That wasn't the one. So is that when when you go into a place of law of fear of loss or fear of not being loved? Uh, I mean, because this shows up in more than just relationships. I mean, not enough shows up a lot for especially women. It's designed to. What I mean, it's designed to. Okay. Because people confuse infatuation with love, and until they haven't matured enough to understand the difference between love and infatuation, they're going to keep banging their head against the wall and have crushes crush them. Infatuation is not love. Infatuation is an assumption there's going to be more advantage and disadvantage, more positives and negatives, and you're living in a fantasy land of dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin, and kenkephalons, and endorphins, and you're getting a high, and you're thinking, oh, my God, and you're fantasizing about who and what this is going to lead to. That's not love. That's infatuation. And that is designed to be broken and crushed because you will never be able to be your authentic self in front of that. When you're infatuated, you lose yourself and you eventually build enough resentment to get yourself back because you can't be yourself around them. So you want a match. A, mm. a quality match is an authentic state where you embrace the positives and negatives equally in them. You like and dislike. You understand that the very trait you admire also has downsides. They're very intellectual, but they argue. They're very hardworking, but they, they're a workaholic. And they never see you. They're very good looking, but everybody else is wanting them. You know, there's always a pair of opposites of things you like and dislike in people. And if you can't face that, you'll be infatuated. And infatuated relationships are transient at best, and they're there to self-depreciate you to associate pain with a false, non-authentic pursuit. Hmm. So, and I'm not enough shows up. I mean, that shows up so many different places. That can show up in the workaholic that like works so much because there he or she's trying to overcome uh, the feeling of not being enough. Uh, it, it can show up in people pleasing of like different relationships. Um, how do you, I mean, I'm not enough is, is a core. I don't know what, I guess I shouldn't call it a wound because you'll say that it, it, it has a, a p- upside, but it drives human behavior quite dramatically. So not just in relationships. How do we overcome I'm not enough? Is that, was that implanted in us as a child? No, 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 no. Every human being has both. I'm better than anybody else. I'm not as good as anybody else. Anytime they meet somebody that they put on a pedestal or put them in the pit. If you're, if you're speaking in front of public and you're speaking Mm -hmm. to a kindergarten class and you're an adult, you're probably not going to have, I'm not good enough in front of this kindergarten class. But the second you go to a class that is PhD levels and highly advanced people and in the field you're speaking on, and they're the people that wrote the textbooks you read, and you're now feeling, oh my God, they're better, greater, smarter than I am. Now you're going to think I'm not good enough. You are designed to self-minimize, self-depreciate when you exaggerate other people. You are designed to exaggerate yourself when you minimize people. That's the biological mechanism of comparison. We're not here to compare ourselves Mm, to other people. mm. We're here to compare our own actions to our own dreams. And that's the way out of that trap. But the Mm. second we subordinate to somebody else and think they're smarter, they're more intelligent, they're more successful, they're more wealthy, they're more stable in their relationship, they got a more handsome or beautiful spouse, they've got more social connections, they're more physically fit or beautiful, or they're more spiritually aware. The moment we compare ourselves to people we put on a pedestal, we are designed to self-depreciate as a feedback to let us know we are not pursuing our authentic path. 
we're trying to live in the values of others we've got on a pedestal. It's normal. It's not something you will get rid of. It's not a flaw. It's a biological mechanism as a feedback to let people know that they're pursuing, again, inauthentic paths. They're comparing themselves to others, Mm. comparing their actions to their own dreams, their own values. No two people have the same values. If you compare yourself to other people, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. We're not here to compare ourselves to others. We're not here to put people on pedestal pits. We're here to put them in a heart. If you admire somebody or despise somebody, they represent a part of you that you're too humble or too proud to admit you have. When you finally admit you have it and look Mm. and reflect, you'll realize that there's nobody worth putting on pedestals or pits. They're all reflections of disowned parts you haven't honored in yourself. Once you honor those, you're stable and you don't have to worry about building yourself up or beating yourself Mm. up because your body doesn't need to do that. It's designed to do that when you exaggerate or minimize other people. It's designed to. It's not a flaw. People are trying to get rid of wow. a part of their life that they're not needing to get rid of. They just need to understand what its meaning is. And that's primarily, I, I hate to, to say it, but, but it's primarily the entire model we have in the healthcare system. Our model is palliative. Oh, yeah. It's, it's set up on the idea of feel good instead of grow and mature. And that's got us in the idea, I want to get rid of mm. negative thinking. And that is underlying. That's a moral hypocrisy that no human being or no society can live by. And it traps people when they finally have this idea. They're supposed to be one-sided individuals supposed to be nice and never mean and kind, never cruel and positive, never negative and peaceful, never wrathful and generous, never stingy and all these one-sided things. You're going to self-depreciate when you face the truth that you have both sides. I don't need to get rid of any part of myself. Hmm. I can love both parts. I have all those parts. And so does everyone else. But we have this fantasy, this moral hypocrisy that comes from religions and politics you're supposed to be this way, and it's been used. It's been used as a way of governing and controlling people who are not wise enough to get past their amygdala's response because the amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, and it's the opium of the masses telling people this one-sided world, which makes them easy to control. It's a manipulation, and we fall for it because we're in our amygdala, and we're not learning to appreciate both sides of our life. So then is the, is the idea when something perceived comes in that's negative, would it be helpful for the brain to go, yeah, this is a part of the whole experience of life. This is part of there's ups, there's downs. And if, because if we're, what I hear from that is we're constantly trying to stay in happiness and safety and, and pain free. But if we acknowledge that there's going to be times that it's not going to be like that. So when that shows up, we go, oh, okay, this does happen. And we stop trying to get back to pleasure as quickly as possible. Does that calm the amygdala? You can't do it intellectually. You have to go in there and actually go in and balance these things out in your mind. So you can't just intellectually go, well, it's all balanced. And that's not going to accomplish anything. I mean, having an objective view on life and understand the difference between a fantasy and a real objective, which is an objective is going and looking at what are the challenges and obstacles and the possible risks that are involved in pursuing something that's meaningful and mitigating those risks and preparing for them, which then calms down the fantasy that it was once. And now you're grounded and you're now prepared for the real world. If you're in a relationship, imagine I was dating you and I said Mm -hmm. to you, okay, here's the expectation for you to date me. Here's the thing. You have to be nice, never mean, kind, never cruel, positive, never negative, happy, never sad, up, never down, peaceful, never wrathful, considerate, never inconsiderate. You have to do whatever I say and never do anything against it. Can you see how delusional I would be? Yeah. Okay. So people have that delusion. Yeah. 
And they're so walking around sort of, with that delusion and wondering why life's not uh, matching their fantasy. Ground yourself. If I was dating you, the truth is you have a set of priorities and values. When I do things that support those values, you'll be nice to me. When I do things that challenge those values, you're going to be mean to me. I have the accountability, if I want a response from you, to be able to communicate effectively that way. But I can't expect you to be one-sided. That's delusional. And you can't expect life to be that way or any human being to be one-sided. Life is that way. It's not that way. Society is not that way. Your goals always have two sides. So people have the addiction to a monopole, one-sided things, and that undermines their power. It sets them up for fantasies. It makes their life a nightmare. And it's a hedonistic pursuit instead of eudaimonia that Aristotle was saying is much wiser as the Stoics opened the door for. So I'm a firm believer in waking people up about objective reality instead of sitting there living fantasy lands. And religion politics feeds that. It feeds the heaven without Mm -hmm. the hell, the happiness without the sadness, the harmony without disharmony. And look at all the ads on the TV. Take a drug and and you feel great. And then at the last second, under extremely fast thing, will make your, you know, your eyeballs go blind and make your cardiovascular say, will give you all the side effects on it. But it's so fast that you don't listen to that. You only hear the positive side. So we're fed fantasies. Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner, said that it's not that we don't know so much. We know so much that isn't so. And so my job as an educator is to educating people on objective reality, which is way more magnificent than the fantasies they're addicted to. And it leads them to a more stable life. It's as simple as that. So would it be helpful to the brain when something that's perceived that's negative and and we're in an anxious state and we're running old tapes, would it be helpful based off what you just said to say to yourself, okay, there's something here for me to learn. There's something here that I can grow from as opposed to why is this happening? I'm uncomfortable. Well, that's no, a, you have that's to go back. Through. That's a start, but that's still weak. The wisest thing to do is stop right there on the spot and ask, what is the upside to this? How is it helping me fulfill what's highest in my value? What's How is it helping me fulfill what I believe is my mission on earth? How is it helping me spiritually? How is it helping me intellectually? How is it helping me in my career? How is it helping me in my business and my finance? And ask and hold yourself accountable and find it. I do it every week. And then people go, well, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Look again. And at first they tell you, I can't see it. Well, then look again. And when they start looking beyond their conscious level to the unconscious, whoa, they find all kind of blessings out of these things. And then they realize, oh. And then they realize that that Mm -hmm. traumatic event wasn't even a traumatic event. It was an event. All events are neutral until somebody with a subjective Mm -hmm. bias interprets it and makes it positive or negative. There is no positive events or negative events. That's the false. That's the thing that people have got you. Those are called false attribution biases and false causalities. As long as people are trapped in that, they Mm -hmm. want to blame that. As Epictetus, the Greek philosopher said, We start out blaming others in our journey of personal development. Then we start blaming ourselves. And then we finally realize there's nothing to blame. There's something to understand and appreciate. Yeah. And by the way, whatever you're. I would would actually say that's very. Whatever you're addicted to in the world, you attract a opposite to break the addiction. So if you're addicted to peace, you're going to get conflict. If you're addicted to protection, you're going to get aggression. Whatever you're. If you're addicted to innocence, you're going to get the perpetrator. Nature is trying to give what Heraclitus said 5,000 years ago. I mean, 2,500 years ago, 
that there's always a pair of opposites and there's a unification and a quantum entangled relationship between this pair of opposites. When you know how to ask the right question, you liberate yourself from the illusion of a one-sided world. Wow. So if you're addicted to praise or you're addicted to, pe- to pleasing people, then you're, what I hear from that is you're going to keep getting scenarios where people are unhappy to balance out your addiction to praise. Well, the addiction to praise puffs you up. And whenever you're arrogant, that's inauthentic. So nature brings in something pride before the fall. And when you're arrogant, you tend to project your values onto people, which challenge other people, which means you're challenging their values and you're arrogant, which draws in criticism to bring you back down. That's why the addiction to praise will draw in criticism to bring you back into homeostasis. Criticism is not a terrible thing. We've made this crazy thing because of positive thinking movement. Criticism is an absolutely essential biological function in society to keep people authentic. Because when people are puffed up, arrogant, and projecting their values and expecting others to live in their values and challenging other people, they're going to attract criticism. If I walk in a room, let's say I'm about to go and do a speech and I walk into a room and um, somebody says, oh, Dr. DiMartini, I love your presentations and you're so this and that. And they start praising me. If I go in there and I humble myself below where they put me, they'll keep lifting me up. If I just go, thank you, you know, talk to my girlfriend. She has a different view. <laughs> and and you, you just act really humble. <laughs> you go below where they think you are, they'll keep praising you. Guarantee it. But if you walk in and they go, well, Dr. Martini, you're amazing or something. And then you go, you have no idea how amazing I am. I am more amazing than you, mere mortal, can comprehend. I am the most amazing individual. Mm-hmm. If I go and put myself up above and start acting arrogant, they'll go, ah, They'll start cutting me down and criticizing me right off the bat because society is designed to assist people in being what they call authentic. We have what is called heterotelic feedback from our society in order to guide us back into authenticity. And when we finally realize that whatever's going around us is trying to get us back into authenticity, we're not sitting there addicted to praise and frightened of reprimand. But the more we're addicted to praise, the more frightened we are of reprimand. Whatever we get emphilic about, we get phobic about its opposite. And whatever we get phobic about, we create dissociations and philias and fantasies of the opposite. Nature always has a pair of opposites like a magnet. You can't cut a magnet and get one-sided magnets. Yeah. I, I remember hearing you years ago, I mean, this is like decades ago, saying that if you've had a really good day and you're you're jazzed about this really good day, then a really bad day, this is the way I heard it, was a really bad day is going to happen the next day because the body's always balancing itself out no. or the mind is always balancing itself out. No. So is the goal to stay neutral? No, 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 no. That's not what it is. If you're having a day that you think is all up, you're blind to the downsides. If you're having a day that's all down, you're blind to the upsides. There is no good or bad day out there. There's just a day. It's just in a, the same 24 hours going on. The sun's we're going around the thing. So what yeah. I what I was saying is that when I was uh, in, in professional practice years ago, 40 years ago, if I had this day where I felt like, whoa, I'm really amazing. I did an amazing job or whatever. And wow, just saw a lot of patience and made a lot of income and a lot of thank you stuff. I learned to ask the question, what procedure did I overlook? What staff member did I not thank? What patient's name did I forget? What birthday mm-hmm. did I overlook? What did I overlook? 
And I would ask those questions, calm myself down and center myself and not leave the office until I had a tear of gratitude for the opportunity to be of service. Or otherwise, I'm puffed up and arrogant thinking I'm special. Mm -hmm. It's all about me. And I have a false attribution bias. I caused that day. If I have a down day, and by the way, when I come home Mm -hmm. arrogant, I get nailed at home and I don't sleep very well because the spouse, the Mm -hmm. the purpose of marriage is not Mm -hmm. happiness. The purpose of marriage is to attract somebody in your life to help you become authentic. And to somebody who can delegate lower priority things Mm. you're not inspired by. But the point is that that Mm. if you actually go and govern yourself, you don't have to have the social social feedback from the governance on the outside. People that know how to listen to their physiology and psychology and know how to self-govern are leaders and they don't need governance from politics and religion. They don't need outside control because they've got inner control. Mm. But people, that's the executive center, self-governance, that they mitigate the, the volatilities of the impulses and instincts from the external world. But the individual that is highly addicted to that praise and think, wow, I'm great, and they attract tragedy and challenges and humbling circumstances and distracting low priority from the hubris, they're doing that and they're going to think, oh, my God, this tragedy occurred. No, this blessing to try to get you authentic occurred. And you were puffed up. That was inauthentic. And now you're back in authenticity. Mm-hmm. Now, if you overshoot and you have a terrible day, you ask the question, who did I serve? Who did yeah. I remember? What did I accomplish? And you governing mm-hmm. yourself. When you do, I guarantee you, when you get home, you're going to have a loving spouse at home. You're not going to have the gyrations because their job is to keep you authentic. If you come in authentic, they don't have to do anything. It's a lot, lot, lot less eventful and dramatic at home. And the same thing is a lot less dramatic. When I started doing wow. that, the stability of my practice went up without all the volatilities, the ups and downs, the good and bad days. Right. There is no such thing as a good and bad day. There's just days. We choose to see only half the equation to labor right. such. Right. And so do you ask, I remember last time you telling me that you write down all the things you're grateful for every single day. Is there, what I'm hearing is that as you're navigating the natural emotional highs and lows, or we don't call them highs and lows, but the the spectrum of emotions, that these questions on a daily basis start to bring you back into that authentic place. Is that what I'm hearing from you is really always trying to stay in that authenticity and authenticity doesn't tend to have the puffed up or the I'm the I'm so great or I'm not enough. It's more in that center grounded place. Take out always. No one's going to be always authentic where we, we have moments of authenticity. Yes. The moment we do, we transcend our vicissitudes and perceptions that were in balance, our imminent minded state, as Emmanuel Kant says, and we have a moment of grace and we have thankfulness, but we don't grow there. <laughs> we grow by tackling the next illusion that we accumulated and built in our earlier part of our life. So now we tackle the next thing and our next button and we grow again. We have this idea of, see, the amygdala wants to hurry up and get out of all the pain and make life blissful. That's probably the most devastating thing and it creates more suicides and more depressions than anything I've seen. Depression is a comparison of your current reality to a fantasy you keep being addicted to. You're expecting unrealistic expectations. So I don't have this expectation. I'm supposed to be now living in total balanced bliss. No, false construct. I, I work through my illusion and I go on to the next one. Staying in the same illusion is called stagnation. Going on to the next illusion is called growth. 
Um, it's brilliant. And when I look at like what has gone on in the world, I mean, you talked about healthcare. When I look at this, the mental state of the world right now, where what's our door out of this? I mean, what you're saying is profound. And yet so many people are run by their amygdala. How do we help the world move in a direction that feels more peaceful? And maybe it were, that's not the right word because you're not looking for peace. But how do we, the concepts you're teaching, if everybody knew that, wow, what a different world we would be living in. How do we move in that direction? Well, you need a social structure. I just did a presentation on this. You have to have a social structure. You can't have everybody chiefs. Can't everybody cooks in the kitchen. So you'll have a social structure. And typically mm-hmm. in the social structure, those at the top of the social structure, because values go from those who have power to those that have least power, they're living more by design. The people down below are living more by duty. One's ontological at the top of the social structure. One's deontological by duty at the bottom. So there is a social structure. And one, the ones at the top have a higher probability of self-actualization. The people at the bottom have a lower probability and they're more into survival. So they're more into systems one versus systems two at the top. So this is pretty normal. That's not a bad thing. We have to have it. You can't have everybody a billionaire and there's no distribution of economics. So I don't want to give a false construct that, you know, the world's supposed to be that way. And if you study the global peace index, you'll find out the 23 parameters on 99.7% of all the world's population that they monitor 23 parameters on war and peace. They maintain balance year after year after year after year because Maximum growth and development occurs at the border of support and challenge. In chaos theory, maximum growth and development occurs at the border of order and chaos. We must have support and challenge. That's why we have a food chain. We have prey that we live on, and we have predator that eats on us. One is for support, anabolic, parasympathetic, build. The other is catabolic, parasympathetic, destroy. And we must have a balance of build and destroy, a conservation symmetry that keeps those in balance to maximally grow. If we had nothing but prey without predator, we'd be gluttonous and fat and not fit. If we had nothing but predator and no prey, we'd be emaciated and starved and not fit. But if we put the two together, support and challenge, somebody that uh, wants to support us and challenge us, we maximize fitness. That's why if you've got an overprotective mom, sometimes the father says, go play in the street. And he has to play off the other role, these pairs of opposites to keep you balanced. So I don't promote this idea that you're supposed to have, you know, peace and everything else. It's delusional. There's no indication. I've spoken at three peace conferences, and I, I, I stood up one time at a peace conference, and I said, how many of you have moments of inner peace and Zen peace? Everybody put their hands up because we're at a peace conference. I said, how many of you have moments of inner turmoil and, and internal conflict? And everybody looked at each other going, oh, my God, we're at a peace conference. Are we allowed to say what's real true? And they were frightened and they waited for, and I finally said, well, I certainly do. And once I gave them permission, they said, well, we all do. Okay, good. So you have both peace and turmoil, calm and turmoil. Yes. Okay, when you get married and you find a mate, would you agree you finally get peace? And they all laughed and go, oh, no. No, you have two people with different sets of values and you have times of peace and times of conflict. And they go, yeah. I said, would you agree when you do that? Now, when you have times of peace and you make love and you get offspring, when you finally have kids, would you agree you finally get peace? No. You've got a child now and it's got times of calm and no. times of turmoil. <laughs> and when you get with your a bigger family, you've got right. calm and turmoil and peace and war going on. And everybody, if I ask them in a family, how many had peace and war in a family? Everybody puts their hand up. I said, now you go into a work and you go into social structures, no matter what dynamic and social skill family, community, city, state, nation, world, there's still cooperation, competition. 
build and destroy. It's remodeling because transformation is evolution and you have to have build and destroy to make evolution work. Mm -hmm. That's why we have mitosis, apoptosis in our body, alkalinity, acidity in our body. Mm -hmm. We have uh, pride and shame in our licensing effect. Nature's trying to give us wisdom, but we overlook it with fantasies. Moral hypocrisies were supposed to be one-sided, which is unobtainable. The Buddha said it really beautifully. The desire for that which is unobtainable, the positive pull the magnet, and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable, the negative pull the magnet, is a source of human suffering. Stop the fantasy, ground yourself on the magnificence, the pair of opposites, and what an authentic life is. An authentic life is somebody who's both nice and mean and kind and cruel and positive and negative and has all traits. I went through the Oxford Dictionary. I found I had 4,628 individual traits, honest, dishonest, kind, cruel, positive, negative. You don't have to get rid of half of yourself to love yourself. If you want to love yourself, embrace it all. If you embrace that in others, embrace that in yourself, you stabilized your life. And embracing it in others, that's, that's I think, also key is just seeing that there's ups and downs of, of the people in your life. I think that's absolutely brilliant. I, I, I could talk to you. My, my girlfriend, my girlfriend uh, she has times when she wants to hug and times when she wants to slug. That's normal. That's perfectly normal. Yeah. Oh my we got, I think that's why we got more padding that. on our ass than we do on our shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. Okay. I love this. I could talk to you for hours and I know we're bringing you back in a couple of weeks to my academy group to talk to them. But let, let me let me finish up with this thought. Um, I always ask everybody this year, my podcast has really represented gratitude. I know you have a gratitude practice. I feel like I've heard it before, but share with us your daily gratitude practice. It may be an hourly gratitude practice, I'm thinking from you, but what, what, are you, what do you do to foster gratitude I'll, I'll in your life? I'll be brief because I'm, I'm on another uh, podcast two minutes ago. I need to get on the next. Yeah. Uh, I, every day, stop and just ask, what is it that I had the opportunity to do? And, and whatever I had the opportunity mm-hmm. to do, I document it. What did I learn? What did I experience? Who did I get to be with? Who did I get to do it? I, I constantly document that on a daily basis. That's why I try to teach people that because it, it liberates them from a lot of baggage in their life. Hey, Resetters. Did you know I have another book coming out? It is, and it's coming out in December. It is called Fast Like a Girl, and it is the first fasting manual for women timing six different fasts to our hormonal cycle. And what's really cool about this book and what maybe I'm the most proud of is that the information in the book is going to help you balance your hormones, whether you are 25 or you're 65. So it is dense with hormonal information. It is packed with fasting science. And there's a 30-day fasting reset in it that you can put into action immediately. So I know this book is going to change healthcare for women. It is going to give women the power back. And if you're wanting to dive into learning how to build a lifestyle that keeps your hormones in balance, this is absolutely the book for you. So go over to fastlikeagirl.com forward slash pre-order and pre-order the book today. And I will tell you, do not wait because we're giving away insane bonuses for those of you that pre-order. 
So just head on over to fastlikeagirl.com forward slash pre-order. And I will leave a link here in the notes of this podcast episode and enjoy. This is going to be such a fun experience for us all to dive into the principles of this book together, especially as we go into the new year, finishing up 22 with a strong, healthy vibe and entering into 23 with the best health that you could ever imagine. That's what this book can deliver. I am so excited to bring it to you. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is. 